Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day as we wrap up another very eventful week. We hope that you are safe. Please be careful. As the news continues on COVID-19, we now see that the U.S. has the most confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the world. So we're going to focus a lot on that today. Later in the program, we're going to talk with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association, to look at how the rural health care system is uh, handling COVID-19. And we're going to talk with a local hospital here in my hometown of Jacksonville, Illinois. We will talk with Dr. Scott Boston, who is president and CEO of Pazvin Area Hospital here in Jacksonville, Illinois. We have Here we have one confirmed case of uh, coronavirus, and we'll talk about that and how a local hospital is preparing, what it's doing to be ready to handle uh, this situation. Also coming up on the program today, as the House works on that $2 trillion stimulus package. What's in it for the dairy industry? We'll talk with Paul Bleiberg with the National Milk Producers Federation. Also later in the program, Gene Millard with Golden Triangle Energy uh, Ethanol Plant just outside of St. Joseph, Missouri. We've talked a lot about how ethanol plants are really struggling right now. We'll talk about that situation, how it's impacting these these ethanol plants, and how some of them, like Golden Triangle, are uh, providing alcohol for the making of uh, hand sanitizers. Now, not all plants can do that. Not all ethanol plants can do it, but some are, and we'll talk about that effort underway as well. We're going to start things off today, though, talking with Chuck Connor, President and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Chuck, thank you for joining us. Uh, as I mentioned, the House working on the, the stimulus bill right now. Uh, what's the significance of this bill as far as agriculture is concerned. We've talked about, you know, there's money in there for the CCC and different things. How do you see this helping agriculture through this pandemic? Well, Mike, thanks for having me on today. And um, let me just say this is an important bill for American agriculture. Um, $2.2 trillion. I mean, first of all, we've we've never passed any kind of uh, stimulus or appropriations bill or anything of this magnitude so this is this is definitely plowing new territory in terms of numbers and the amount of money that's going to be put out there but the money for the commodity credit corporation is very very important uh, secretary purdue has been using the uh, uh, corporation to uh, make uh, um, mfp payments out there in farm country which have been critical over the last year or so to uh, uh, compensate producers for some of the lost trade that they've had and uh, he's bumping up against the borrowing authority and the limits of what he can do. And so this bill uh, provides additional uh, borrowing authority and additional money uh, so that we can begin to assess and uh, compensate producers accordingly for the losses associated with uh, the coronavirus. And that'll be a process to take place now, right? I mean, once they get that money, then they'll have to decide how to use it. That's correct. Congress has provided a little bit of direction, uh, but... Generally speaking, uh, there is money there for the CCC. Uh, there's a separate pool of money that has been identified specifically for livestock uh, producers. And then after that, it's going to be up to the secretary to more or less determine how to allocate that money. And so you know, we will be working uh, closely with him and uh, offering uh, our advice on uh, how we think that can best 
get in the hands of producers and do the most for them here in the short term as they're preparing uh, to, to go to the, the field for spring planting. We're talking with Chuck Connor, president and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Chuck, let's talk about that as farmers do get ready to go to the fields. We've talked a lot in recent days about uh, keeping the food supply chain open, getting food to the retail centers and, and, and to consumers. But what about the supply chain to make it uh, possible for farmers to have everything they need to go to the fields to plant this spring? Uh, what do you see happening there? Are there any concerns? Well, there's always concerns during a crisis like this, um, Mike. This is a generational event, and so you you know you would be uh, silly not to have concerns. But I will tell you that when the Department of Homeland Security issued their guidance last week, uh, designating you know what we regard as the entire food pendulum from uh, everything that farmers need to plant, you know, to the grocery store as critical, you know, designated critical infrastructure. That was a huge moment for us. And as each of these states uh, announces their uh, their quarantine restrictions, their stay-at-home requirements, including your home state of Illinois, for the most part, they are following those DHS guidelines that were announced last week. And under those guidelines, again, we're, we're designated as critical in the supply business, and we believe that that is going to enable us to continue to get the farmers the products they need uh, to plant a crop um, on time and as normal as you can possibly have, given the circumstances that we're under. What have you heard from members across the country? Any uh, areas of concern or bottlenecks or tightness of supply or anything? Well, um, obviously it was going to be a challenging spring to begin with, Mike. Um, you know, there's many parts of the country that are literally still harvesting last year's crop. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the the challenge of getting not only that crop, uh, you know, which was a, a record number of, of acres that were left in the field uh, last year, harvested and then immediately prepared for another crop. It was going to be a challenging spring, but, you know, this is a remarkable system we have in place, Mike. The ability of farmers and their suppliers to get, you know, products and choreograph, you know, what is, you know, an enormous uh, show of strength in terms of uh, getting all of this done. It, you know, it's it's a remarkable thing to watch, and I I just I believe with every ounce of me that their farmers are ready, and the people that help them are going to be ready to get this job done, and and we're going to have crops in the ground, and and again to the extent that anything is normal today, given the virus and everything that we're facing, I believe. Uh, producers are going to step up here and we're going to get we're going to get everything done and and our food supply is going to be protected and um, you know not to say there won't be hiccups here and there but uh, for the most part uh, we will do what we always continue to do which is feed Americans for a relatively uh, nominal amount of money all right Chuck thank you very much and uh, we'll watch uh, see what happens with the stimulus package already talk about a fourth one um, that they're starting to prepare for in Congress. We'll see what happens with that. But thank you very much for the update. Thanks, Mike. You take care. You too. Stay safe. Chuck Connor, President and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Other news, the Ag Department is accepting 3.4 million acres into the CRP after the uh, general sign-up, the first in four years. 89% of the acreage that landowners offered for the program wound up being accepted. The cutoff for enrollment was an environmental benefits index of 210. 
Texas, Colorado, and Kansas saw some of the highest number of acres, according to uh, USDA's state-by-state information. So uh, we'll be talking more about that in the days to come. But again, over 3 million acres being accepted into the CRP. Up next, we're going to talk with Paul Blyberg with the National Milk Producers Federation as we take a look at this $2 trillion stimulus package. And we just talked about the money going into the CCC. Well, there's also some uh, stipulation for dairy in there. We'll talk about that, what's, uh, what's in there for the dairy industry. That's next. Stay with us on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by Paul Blyberg, Vice President, Government uh, Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. So much going on, Paul. Before we get to the uh, stimulus package, just getting word that uh, the State Department is expanding the H-2A visa waiver program uh, to allow make more workers eligible under this program. I know labor is a key issue for the dairy industry. Do you know any more details on this? I haven't had a chance, Mike, to get all the details on that, so we'll definitely be taking a look at it today. But obviously, uh, anything that would help you, your industry, get more workers uh, would be uh, much appreciated, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it just depends on depends on what's being done. Obviously, there are limitations, as we know, about you know, dairy's ability to use the H-2A program. So, you know, what they can do during an emergency situation, you, you never know, but we'll, we'll definitely be looking at the details there. Yep, the details are the key. You're right. All right, let's talk about, we're waiting for details. Or we're waiting for the stimulus bill to pass in the House. Uh, assuming that it does, what's in there for dairy? Sure. So a uh, couple of things are, are really of note for dairy. Uh, in the bill, there is a $9.5 billion Agriculture Emergency Response Fund for coronavirus, and that fund gives the Department of Agriculture the ability to, you know, prepare for, prevent, and respond to coronavirus in a way to help producers. And dairy is specifically targeted in that fund as one of the kind of priority areas. So we were really, really pleased to have dairy included in that, and that's a testament to the work of a number of folks in the Senate, especially uh, Senator Schumer, Senator Stabenow. Uh, Senator Leahy, a number of people were were very, very helpful in those discussions. Obviously, Senator Stabenow being the ranking member on the Senate Ag Committee, working closely with Senator Schumer as the minority leader, uh, they were really advocating for dairy in that process. And, uh, you know, having dairy mentioned among several sectors in that fund, we think will be very helpful because it's a clear indicator of congressional intent uh, that dairy needs to be kind of prioritized in that area. So as we go toward conversations with USDA about some of the needs that we feel are kind of priority for the dairy sector dealing with this you know, pandemic, uh, we think that's going to put us in a, in a good spot. That is significant because, as I've been mentioning, uh, this puts money into the Commodity Credit Corporation, and then it's kind of up to USDA to decide how a lot of that money is going to be used. But as you said, in this case, with dairy being specifically mentioned, that should uh, uh, give you some maybe some priority status in, in some of that funding. And, and you actually hit on something important that I should have added in my in my last answer. In addition to the nine and a half billion, which which sort of singles out dairy, livestock, 
uh, local food producers and specialty crop producers. There's also a partial replenishment of the Commodity Credit Corporation of $14 billion. And, you know, that's that's more broad under the Charter Act, and it doesn't specify specific sectors as, as being the focus there. But obviously that's also money that USDA can use for whether it's trade promotion or product purchases or a variety of things. That'll be beneficial as well. But, yes, really having dairy included, in, you know, as specifically cited in that, you know, the $9.5 billion fund will be will be very helpful. We're talking with Paul Blyberg with the National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, in what ways do you see that money being used? What are the needs out there in the dairy industry? So a number of things we've talked about. Um, I'll touch on a couple. We've talked about the importance of product purchases. I think as we've seen, you know, restaurant closures, food service cancellations, school closures, you've had a lot of product lines deal with, obviously, sales losses right now just because not every product line can be converted over to retail where, where sales are strong. And so, you know, we've been talking with the department and we're going to continue talking with Congress and USDA about the importance of a strong dairy product purchase, which will send a good demand signal to dairy markets. And dairy is a very popular item in food banks. And with unemployment rising, there's going to be a lot of demand on food banks right now. And so we think a product purchase could be very, very helpful, you know, feeding hungry people, getting nutritious dairy in the hands of as many children and families as possible and sending a good signal to the dairy market. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, well, a lot of people can just... uh relate to going to the grocery store and sometimes finding uh, they have to wait a while for the milk supply to get restocked. Uh, it, it shows what the, this demand is right now. That's right. I've been going to the grocery store every few days, just as we all have, and trying to keep going outside otherwise to a minimum, but obviously have to go out and get essential things. And dairy products are flying off the shelves here in Washington, D.C., and I'm sure everywhere else in the country, too, and we've been seeing that. But it, it, we also remind people we have milk. Cows are still being milked, and, and it's just a matter of distribution, the supply chain moving it through. And fortunately, that, in some places, it may take a little longer than usual, but for the most part, things are still moving. Absolutely, that's right. We, we do need to keep the supply chain moving. My colleague, Clay Detlefson, who leads our regulatory efforts, is the chair of the Food and Ag Sector Coordinating Council, and he's working very, very closely with the whole food and ag sector and with the Department of Homeland Security, other folks in the administration, to make sure that where there are any problems or any interruptions, that things are, are dealt with and corrected as quickly as possible. But to your point, the milk supply is safe. Production is continuing. You know, the pasteurization process we know kills coronaviruses, and so we've made the point to make sure that consumers understand that. But it is important that where there are potential supply chain disruptions, that those be dealt with quickly. So if the House does indeed get this stimulus bill passed today, it'll it'll take time, obviously, for everything to be worked through and these funds actually applied to these areas we've talked about. How long a time period do you, do you anticipate that being? <coughs> Excuse me. It's hard to know the exact time frame, but I think, you know, assuming the House passes the bill today, I think we expect the president to sign it into law very, very quickly. And I, I think from there, given the urgency, not just in agriculture, but in really every sector of the economy, I think work will begin very, very early on to start implementing what's in the law. And so obviously we've already been having productive conversations with the Department of Agriculture and kind of key dairy players in Congress and others. And I think those will just ramp up even even more so in the coming days once this bill becomes law, because I think USDA knows the urgency around this for the agriculture sector. Other departments know the urgency for different industries that they deal with in different sectors. And frankly, obviously the need to be helping you know families of all walks of life here. So I think the implementation will be a top priority and, and move very quickly, but obviously we'll be having a lot of conversations in that process to get the best outcome that helps dairy farmers. There's talk of a yet another 
maybe more than another, but at least one more stimulus bill. Do you think agriculture will be a part of that one? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in doing more for agriculture. I think what's, what's in this bill is a very important start, especially what I mentioned around the $9.5 billion, uh, that includes dairy there. I think it's a very, very vital start to get things going. But I think there will absolutely be more interest. There were some provisions in the House package that uh, Chairman Peterson put forward in the dairy space, and there are other provisions there that I think there's going to be a lot of interest in and, and other ideas, too, that ha- maybe haven't been put forward yet. So I do think that there's going to be a fourth bill, and I think there will be a lot of interest in ag in that fourth bill and nutrition as well. Frankly, there's been a lot of discussion about doing more on the nutrition side, on the SNAP side, in a fourth piece of legislation. So I expect that we'll, that we'll see that play out over the coming weeks. We, we mentioned earlier the labor situation. I know that's something you've been working on even before COVID-19 is trying to get uh, some labor reform. Is, is that on hold now in the Senate, the bill that's being looked at there, or will that work continue? You know, my sense is most everybody in Congress and the administration and really every sector is focused on COVID-19 right now. That's not to say that discussions can't go on, but I think really everything in the COVID-19 space is priority. So I would imagine that most of that work would pick back up afterwards, later on, um, as opposed to go to right now. It's, you know, again, not to say that some discussions can't go on, but even you mentioned earlier at the outset of the call, there are labor concerns and labor challenges that people have and are, and are experiencing relative to the pandemic. And so I think in the labor space, those will take precedence right now. Unprecedented times, Paul, and things Absolutely. that we've never seen before. And that that means that things are going to be dealt with in ways maybe we're not used to seeing, too. Absolutely correct. I think we're all in for something we've never experienced before, and we're doing the best we can and trying to stick together. All right. Paul, thank you very much, and we'll stay in touch uh, as this continues to progress, this stimulus bill, and then hopefully we'll be talking soon about how it's actually being uh, uh, applied out in the countryside. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Stay safe. Paul Blyberg, he's Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. So a lot of things happening all at once here, but top story, of course, priority one is the battle on COVID-19, and we're hearing the stories about what's happening, especially in New York, but a lot of other big areas of the country, big metropolitan areas. But what about what's going on in rural America and that battle with COVID-19? We're hearing these stories about shortages of um, of ventilators and shortages of beds and shortages of masks and gowns and things like that. Is that a problem? Is that an issue in rural America, in the rural health care system. We're going to talk about that next. We have two guests in our next segment. We're going to talk with Brock Slaybaugh with the National Rural Health Association. He'll give us a, the overall picture of the National Rural Health System, what's happening in rural hospitals around the country. And then a more local perspective here in my hometown of Jacksonville, Illinois. We're going to talk with Dr. Scott Boston, president and CEO of Pasadena Area Hospital here in Jacksonville, how they are dealing with COVID-19. So all that coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. As COVID-19 continues to spread across the country, we focus in on how 
the rural health care system is prepared to deal with it. We have two guests with us this segment. Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Brock, thanks for joining us again. Brock, are you there? Hopefully we'll have Brock here in just a moment. Also with us is Dr. Scott Boston. He's president and CEO of Pasvin Area Hospital here in my community of Jacksonville, Illinois. Dr. Boston, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you. How are you doing today? Good. I think we have you both on now. Very good. Dr. Boston, I want to start with you. I know here in Jacksonville, there is one confirmed case of uh, coronavirus. Uh, Tell us how your hospital is preparing and and dealing with this situation? So we've taken a number of precautions uh, earlier on in this situation before we even had any tested patients. We have something called a hospital incident command structure where we identify things that we can do to prepare for these type of situations. And there's a number of things that we had done done before we even started testing patients, things such as uh, we did uh, cancel all of our postponable procedures, such things as uh, elective surgeries, um, elective procedures. This did a couple of things for us. Uh, This freed up uh, a lot of our personal protective equipment, what we call PPE. Um, This stuff is used during, you know, sort of routine, regular surgeries, but given the potential for a a surge of patients, we wanted to be good stewards of those resources and make sure that we had that plenty of PPE available. So um, we did uh, reduce the number of surgical outpatient procedures that we're doing as a way to preserve or conserve those PPEs. We also put in some pretty strict um, uh, visitor restrictions. This is done for a couple of reasons. One of them is uh, we want to protect our patients and staff from people who may potentially uh, have uh, the ability to spread the virus unawares. Um, We also wanted to be able to to protect the the public. Um, At this point, we do have a positive COVID patient in the hospital. Um, We are practicing all the uh, uh, required and recommended uh, safe precautions. I'd like to just reiterate the hospital is a safe place to be right now, but to be extra safe, extra cautious, we are recommending uh, no visitors at this time. Um, That, that, again, does a couple of things. Help us to preserve our personal protective equipment, so the fewer people we have in the hospital, uh, the fewer people we need to provide that personal protective equipment to. Um, We've also put in plans where uh, if we were to get to a point where our standard operating procedures, where we would care for intensive care patients, such as our ICU, if we did end up with a surge of patients in that environment, we are looking at other places within the hospital. We can provide that same level of care. Uh, One of the examples I like to talk about is if we ended up needing more patients on ventilators than we could handle in our ICU, we have the ability to convert our OR into a sort of a a triage ICU. This would be an environment where we could provide that same level of intensive care, but it would be outside of our regular uh, ICU. In addition to that, we've converted uh, one of our wings, our two west wing, into a COVID care unit. So we use a negative airflow technology so that any uh, air in that environment is filtered and exhausted to the outside. Uh, We have the ability to care for 14 patients on that wing uh, only patients with COVID um, that would be under investigation or COVID confirmed positive would go to that ward. We would have dedicated personnel just for those patients. Um, they would be cared for uh, in isolation. 
this, uh, this converting this ward to our COVID ward would then allow us to have other parts of the hospital um, that would be uh, isolated from those patients that are being uh, tested or investigated. So um, we've been in conversations with um, our physicians. So if we did get to the point where there was a surge, um, you know, my environment, I came from the emergency department. That was my clinical uh, world. Um, and I've had conversations, just for an example, with a couple of our ER physicians who have the skills and the capacity to take care of critically ill patients. Um, we may have to ask them to take care of patients in an ICU environment as opposed to the emergency room environment, just depending on where the greatest need for that, those skill sets are. We're in similar conversations with other specialists, such people as CRNAs. Um, they have very good skills at covering patients that are ventilated. Um, we have nurses that are currently doing clinical, uh, non-clinical roles, sort of administrative roles. Um, they would be able to be uh, sort of retrained and brought back to the bedside. Um, so we've looked at a lot of things, everything from our supplies to our structure to our people. Um, we've put together a command center to be able to, to manage any sort of a, a surge that would show up. Mm -hmm. That's Dr. Scott Boston, President and CEO of Pasadena Area Hospital in Jacksonville, Illinois. Also with us, Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association. Brock, I'm assuming that what we just heard Dr. Boston uh, talk about in Jacksonville, Illinois, that's going on at rural hospitals throughout the country. Uh, yes, sir. That's um, a very uh, capable uh, program of, uh, of uh, interventions that Dr. Boston has implemented. And uh, uh, you're right, this is going on all over the country. I heard uh, just in your neighbor, the neighboring state over in Indiana, uh, Batesville, Indiana, has had um, significant outbreak of COVID infection, and they're seeing um, a, a surge of patients uh, in their hospital. Uh, Lutcher, Louisiana, another uh, town uh, near New Orleans, a uh, small critical access hospital there, uh, as of uh, two days ago, had 10 patients. Uh, their emergency room was surging uh, as of 10 o'clock p.m. the night before. So we're seeing the uh, kind of a rolling uh, effect of uh, this infectious outbreak and the manifestation in terms of acute disease. Dr. Boston, are you having any difficulty accessing uh, ventilators and other you know, personal protection equipment like masks and gowns, things that we're hearing shortages of in New York and other places. Are you having any trouble accessing that equipment? So we have uh, uh, the capacity for tw uh, 20 ventilators at our hospital. Um, that would include some of our anesthesia carts, which we could repurpose in the case of a surge to be used as ventilators. Um, to be honest, we really don't have access to any other ventilators at this point. I know there's the, the uh, strategic national stockpile, the Illinois Department of Public Health, um, the uh, state of Illinois are in uh, negotiations to see is there uh, the option to get sort of ventilators brought in emergently. Um, we're still negotiating that. Uh, we currently have a set number of ventilators. And we're in the process of working with the state and national uh, agencies to see if there would be a way for us to get uh, uh, extra ventilators. Uh, as far as the personal protective equipment, things like gloves, gowns, masks, uh, currently we have our, our allocation, we would say, is adequate if we had sort of a, an, an average presentation. Uh, the time that we would maybe potentially have some concerns for uh, would be if we got that big surge of patients. Um, we have uh, an adequate supply of personal protective equipment for all of our staff currently. 
Uh, the question would be what would happen if we did get that overwhelming surge of patients. We do have some concern about that. And that is one of the reasons we did, you know, sort of cancel these elective procedures, these postponable procedures, so that we would be conserving, being good stewards of those resources, so that if that surge shows up, we would be we would be prepared. Brock, is there a plan in place if there is a surge in these rural hospitals for them to be able to access more equipment? I think all of the hospital administrators I talk to are busy uh, working uh, behind the scenes to make uh, those things available. The problem is that, um, and, and a real issue is that even if they get the equipment um, that they need potentially, uh, will they have the staff that's able to operate it um, effectively? So. Uh, ventilators, uh, usually in smaller hospitals especially, become quite sentinel in terms of uh, uh, usage. And so uh, that that uh, is a concern, I think, um, uh, ultimately. I think the hospital experience in Lutcher, Louisiana, was a sense of just being overwhelmed with a uh, onslaught of patients all at once. Um, and that creates a real issue because they were having problems getting patients transferred to uh, New Orleans and Baton Rouge because of uh, their hospitals uh, getting uh, experiencing the same uh, surge of patients. We're almost out of time, but Dr. Boston, what is what are you recommending as far as testing is concerned for people concerned that they may have symptoms? So right now, testing is still very limited. There's a very limited supply. Currently, um, my health system, Memorial Health System, we are only testing patients that IDPH recommends. So you have to be hospitalized. So we're not doing any outpatient testing. We just don't have the capacity to do that right now. So our recommendation for patients who are having symptoms is the very first thing is to call. Um, there are numerous hotlines throughout the state, the Memorial Health System. Call your primary care, discuss your symptomology with them. Um, most of the time, frankly, if you're a young, healthy individual, the answer is going to be shelter in place. Um, but you need to be screened by a healthcare professional to determine are your symptoms of such a level that you need to be tested or do you need to be seen in, in a hospital environment or a, a, a express care type environment. So my ask for everybody is that you call first, discuss your symptoms, and get triaged over the phone onto what's the, the best way to care for you as an individual. All right. Well, so much to talk about. We'll try to stay in touch with both of you as this uh, pandemic uh, continues. Hopefully it'll be done soon, but we know it looks like it's going to be a while yet. Dr. Scott Boston, president and CEO of Pasvin Area Hospital in Jacksonville, Illinois. Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Stay with us. Much more to come here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. I want to again thank Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association and Dr. Scott Boston, President and CEO of the Pasvin Area Hospital in Jacksonville, Illinois, for joining us last segment with updates on the battle with COVID-19 and giving us updates on how rural America, the rural healthcare system, is preparing and dealing with the pandemic as uh, this 
crisis continues to spread across the country. So uh, we'll keep you updated. We have mentioned that this is an especially hard time for ethanol plants. Um, A lot going on. Lower fuel prices with the plunge in oil prices. While that's good news for us at the pump, it's not really good news for uh, the ethanol industry. Also, with the slowdown in the economy in some places almost a virtual shutdown of the economy and people not really driving very much that has uh, certainly lessened the demand for fuel which also hurts the ethanol industry we're hearing about ethanol plants either idling or cutting back Um, you know they're not buying corn in some cases well that certainly impacts the markets and impacts farmers so this is a ripple effect uh, throughout uh, the economy joining us now is gene millard Um, gene has long been associated with golden triangle energy in craig missouri just outside of of st joe missouri gene thanks for joining us Uh, tell us what the situation What's the situation like now when you're operating an ethanol plant and what you're dealing with and the the challenges you're facing? Well, it is an extremely delicate issue right now because of uh, the fact that our our broker tells us that gasoline demand is off 70 to 80 percent. Now, that's huge. And the price of fuel ethanol yesterday, I did a little checking, run 87 to 90 cents a gallon. That's eighty-seven, not a dollar eighty-seven. Wow. Eighty-seven to ninety. Uh, there is no way under God's green earth, even at three fifty corn, which is cheap, cheap, uh, that you can produce uh, eighty-seven cent a gallon ethanol uh, and make any margin. So the issue right now is we're hopeful that there's enough storage capacity to get us through this hump. I know that uh, many plants are already filling up their storage uh, and. The, the suppliers uh, that are taking it, even at that depressed price level, they're going to fill up eventually. And mm-hmm. that's going to back up to where there's not a, an, an option in terms of whether the the operations will, will cease uh, operation. I did a brief check yesterday, Mike, with uh, uh, Missouri Corn Growers, which uh, Bradley Shad and the guys down there, they do a fantastic job of uh, working with the groups on ethanol. And he said that his estimate is that Missouri plants are reduced their capacity to about 60, 70 percent. Some plants are, of course, more than that. I had one report yesterday from a plant that we do some business with uh, that's uh, down 50 percent in terms of their output capacity. And so it boils down to how much storage do you have and whether you can wean your way through this and keep going. The package that came through the Senate yesterday could possibly offer some relief uh, if these plants are idled and uh, people lose uh, their employment. We do not want to lose any of our quality staff. We're somewhat fortunate at Golden Triangle. We made a decision some 15 years ago to uh, try to wean ourselves away from fuel and uh, and build a high-quality and industrial-grade alcohol and uh, the demand that we have received at our facility is just astronomical. And so we, we've we got to try to keep supplying, you know, for the hand sanitizers and uh, the many firms that are seeking to make cleansers and utilize uh, high-quality 190 and 200-proof alcohol uh, to keep this uh, this country sanitized. So yeah. uh, it, it's a double whammy, and corn is, is coming in to our plant. I asked yesterday, is, is corn prices down this far? What's, what's our corn supply? Well, we're filling up with corn, too, 
And uh, I know that there's reports of some plants that are trying to sell corn back in the market because they've just got too much inventory. Some plants cannot uh, provide the alcohol for the hand sanitizers. You're fortunate that you took the steps a while back that you were able to. I understand there are some attempts to maybe cut through some of the red tape that would allow more to be able to provide uh, that product. But uh, certainly that shows the importance of diversifying plants like yours. Well, it is, and not everybody can do it. We're a boutique plant. We're small. But one report I received yesterday is that one of the large uh, industrial alcohol suppliers had sold quite a volume in the export market to South Korea recently, and now they say, oh, my, I wish we'd retained that for our own use here in the USA. So it's a worldwide issue. It's not just a local issue. And uh, certainly uh, keeping keeping everything running most of the plants, you know, schedule a shutdown about this time of the year and, you know, take a week off to clean and and, and sanitize their plants and, and uh, get all the maintenance report work done. And so that is offering maybe a little, little check valve to some of the operations that would need to uh, idle anyway. But the issue is, Mike, we were set to shut down, but we don't want 50 people jammed in together from off-site coming into the plant. Uh, during this time period where we're supposed to be self-isolating ourselves and distancing. Uh, so we postponed our shutdown for two months. And, of course, we've had a crew that's kept everything really well maintained. We think we can slide through that far. And by July, maybe things will look different. Real quick, Gene, but we're right out of time. Um, how much alcohol can you put out for hand sanitizers, and where do you sell that to? Uh, Procter & Gamble has been a long-term uh, customer of ours, and uh, there are other firms that, that manufacture uh, sanitizing equipment and and solutions and hand sanitizers. It's pretty easy to make. It's not a real big secret formula. And as you're aware, some of the small uh, distilleries have converted theirs over yeah. to bottle up their own. So it'll happen. You just have to get may- through the 60 days. That's right. Gene, stay safe, take care. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Mike. Gene Millard with Golden Triangle Energy, Craig, Missouri, just outside of St. Joe. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate all of our guests for joining us today. Be safe, everyone. Have a good weekend. Hope you'll join us again on Monday right here on AOA.